Good morning again. And since you heard it many times, I just want to say I am not Alex. I am Jaime. <laughs> Good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, I see some faces I haven't seen in a while and maybe some new faces if uh, that is the case. Um, I need the con, uh, Chris. Ah, okay. Batteries have died. That is, oh, there we go. Sorry, Chris, not you. There we go. <laughs> it's good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, if you happen to be new or if you haven't seen you in a long time, I'd love to say hi at the end of the service. Uh, I'm going to be in the back right under the exit sign. Just come by. I'd love to hear your name, how you ended up here in Chatham County, uh, how you found us this morning, what your morning was like. And if you didn't get one of our welcome gifts, want to make sure you get one of those. Uh, Robert Horry is a name not, me, not many people know, but some people who are huge fans of basketball do. Robert Horry is a very particular person. Robert Horry had a statistically unremarkable career, and yet he had an amazing career as a professional basketball player. Let me say that again. A statistically unremarkable yet amazing professional career in a game where stats matter. For most of his career, uh, Horry came off the bench. Didn't play starter minutes, he never made an all-star game, and he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame more than likely. And yet, he is a seven-time NBA champion. Seven times, that's more than Jordan, that's more than Kobe, for those of you that follow basketball, that's more than Shaq, that's more than any player in the modern era other than the players who happened to be part of the Boston Celtics during the 50s and 60s when they won 11 championships in 13 years. No one else has more NBA titles as a player than Robert Horry. He did it with three teams. And it's not like he just lucked out, right? It's not like he left a team and someone picked him up and it's like, oh, we happen to win a championship. No, they sought him out to be part of those teams and he played a role in them winning. And it might have had something to do with his nickname. Horry's nickname, through most of his career, was Big Shot Bob, or Big Shot Rob. Because even late into his career, he seemed to always be in the right place, right at the right time, when the game was on the line, and his team needed someone to sink in a shot, either to put them ahead, to lock the game in, or to tie it up. And he made those shots over and over and over again. Again, statistically unremarkable. Other than the first few seasons, never averaged more than 10 points a game. Averaged seven points throughout his career. But man, those threes came at the right time. Came at the right time. He earned his nickname actually with his first team, the Houston Rockets. It was the 1995 NBA Finals. Horry hadn't been in the NBA for very long. The Rockets were looking to repeat as champions, but they were up against a young, energetic, on-the-rise team, the Orlando Magic, which was led by Shaquille O'Neal. And they were looking to upset the Rockets with less than 15 seconds left. In game three, the game was, was within one point. The teams were within one point of each other, and the Magic were playing some really tight defense. And all of a sudden, who appears at the three-point line but Robert Horry? And he receives the pass. And with all-stars from the Magic closing in on him to block the shot and raising, his, raising their hands, he jumps up and he sinks the three. He puts the nail in the coffin, not just of the game, but of the series. And Houston goes on to sweep that series. And Big Shot Bob is born. 
He gets his nickname from this game. But not only does he get his nickname, he secures a career that he had no business having otherwise. He had no business having otherwise. Friends, there are moments that seem to have a disproportionate impact in shaping our lives and our legacies. Think about your life. Think about your life or the lives of people you know. It's not that other moments don't matter, right? Character is built on a thousand small decisions. However, there are some moments that just seem to have a disproportionate impact, informing us into the people we become or charting the course that we follow. We might even call those signature moments. And signature moments don't just come in our professional life or in sports careers. They can come in our life with God as well. During the summer, we're going to be making our way throughout the whole Bible, looking at some of the signature moments of the women and men whose stories are told in the ancient scriptures. Some of these signature moments were sought. Some of them came at unexpected moments, but all of them had an impact on their lives and on their legacy. Perhaps as we look at their stories, we'll see ourselves in their stories. Maybe we'll recognize signature moments we've already had or we'll be ready to receive them when they do. Maybe we'll long for the kinds of moments that will change our life and change our legacy for good. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be looking at a story in Genesis chapter 32. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament, and we're going to be in the 32nd chapter, which comes on the tail end of Genesis, not quite at the end, but close to it. Uh, If you don't happen to have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen in just a second, and we're going to start reading in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 32. Here we go. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob has been away from his homeland and from his uh, home family for many years, from the place he grew up. He's been gone for many years. He left that place fleeing from the anger of a twin brother that he'd been in conflict with almost actually since the day they was born, that he was born, that they were born. And Jacob emerged grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. Since then, they'd been in conflict. Along the way, Jacob had taken Esau's rights as the firstborn son, and he'd, he'd found a way to steal his father's blessing. And that was the last straw for Esau. Since then, Jacob has fled. He's grown his family. He's grown his possessions. But things in the place where Jacob had settled had gotten dicey, and he'd heard from God that it was time to return home. So Jacob is on his way back to meet Esau. And as he's on his way back to his home, he hears that Esau is on his way to meet him. But Esau is not coming alone. 
Esau comes with a small army on his way, and Jacob is afraid. He prays. He tells God that he feels threatened. He feels afraid. He knows that God has sent him here, but he doesn't know what to do. And even after he prays, Esau is still coming, and the threat feels real. Maybe Jacob is about to get his comeuppance. So on the night before, they are to meet, right? The, the parties are close enough that within the next day, they will meet up. Jacob sends his family across the river, and he remains alone. And here you have Jacob, a man to whom God has made promises. God has given instructions. God has sent him here, has called him to this place. But Jacob is there, not sure how God is going to deliver on what he promised, because the circumstances seem to indicate that it's going to be a poor end for Jacob and his people the next day. He's got quite a bit to deal with. Not just in terms of that, but even in himself. Because throughout his life, he's done things and treated people in ways that have meant he's taken shortcuts to get the things that he's had, and he's left scorch marks along the way. Burned bridges, broken relationships. So Jacob clears the deck. He sends the people off. He remains alone. He comes to do business with God. In solitude, Jacob has a signature moment. Now, I'm going to make some specific comments about what happens in Jacob's signature moment, but let me make some broader statements about signature moments first. The first one is we can't manufacture signature moments, but we can make space for them. We can make space for them. Jacob doesn't manufacture this signature moment. There isn't a recipe in the guidebook for spiritual living that says, spiritual moment, first ingredient, send people away and be alone. There's no such thing. But we can make space for signature moments. Jacob pursues solitude that he might attend to God in this moment, in this critical moment. He knows he needs something. He knows he needs God. The practice of solitude, along with the practice of silence, has been part of Christian tradition since the days of Jesus. We read it in the Gospels that Jesus would go away up to the mountain to be alone with God. Our lives are, ma are marked by distractions. They are marked by things that claw at us for our attention. Alerts on our phone condition us to continuously look at them. Some estimates say that we look at our phones 150 times a day. How can we attend to the possibility of signature moments in lives that are always full and that only seem to be getting more full? that only seem to have more things grabbing for our attention and biding for our time. Whether you choose to practice solitude or not, the idea of getting alone, the idea of getting quiet so that you can attend, so that we can attend to what God is doing is one that most of us probably desperately need in order to find our way, let alone have signature moments. Now, let me be clear, it doesn't have to be fully quiet in fact, some of us would not be able to function in settings that are fully quiet or fully alone. But we can create spaces that are quiet of the noise. Not sound, but the noise. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The noise of life. It doesn't have to be on a mountain. It doesn't even have to be on the other side of a river. It can be as simple as getting to the office a few minutes early and closing the door. 
It can be as simple as sitting in the minivan just a few minutes longer when no one is there and just making some space to be quiet. Friends, if you make space to attend to God, God will meet you. It may not be a signature moment. Like I said, we can't manufacture signature moments, but it will be something. Because God promises that if we seek him, we will find him. If we call, he will answer. If we knock, he will open the door. Make space for the possibility of signature moments. Make space for God. Whether a signature moment comes or not, God will meet you. It will not be a loss. Jacob does this, and it changes his life. But Jacob doesn't stay there. Jacob doesn't stay in that place. His signature moment isn't the end. His signature moment is a turning point. It shifts the course of his life. If you're a hiker, you may have seen things like the rocks on the screen as you hike. And even if you're not a hiker, you may have noticed these kinds of uh, sort of croppings of rocks in places like uh, trails, mountains. Maybe you've seen them at the beach. Some people stack them in a number of different places. They're called cairns, or they're often called cairns. And cairn markers, or the practice of making cairn markers, uh, has a long tradition. It's been around for a very long time, and it's used for lots of different purposes. On trails and in specific destinations, they're meant to mark a place along the way. They're meant to mark a place along the way and meant to say, people were here. People appreciated this. People passed through this but noticed it, made a point of this location. And when you add a stone or a marker or something else to a cairn, part of what you're saying is, I was part of this too. I was part of this too. But here's the thing. No one stays at the cairn markers. No one lives at the places where the cairn markers are. They move on. Cairn markers aren't final destinations. And the same is true for our signature moments. Signature moments are trail markers, not final destinations. They aren't final destinations. They are turning points that shape our lives and our legacies. But after they happen, we have to go and live our lives and go and leave our legacies. When I worked with college students and they would go to conferences or retreats, they would have some of them these amazing experiences and many just wanted to stay in that spot. They would say things like, why can't we have another week? Why do we have to go back to school? And it's not that they didn't want to go study. It's that the experience was so special that they wanted more. We, we, we used to call those things mountaintop experiences. And then we would usually say something like, well, you got to come down from the mountain. Because the people God is calling you to, the people that God has given you this experience for aren't on the mountain." And they're not going to come to the mountain. You've got to go meet them where they are. You've got to go to them. That's why you've had this experience. Jacob's signature moment happens over the course of a night. But after that night is over, after the morning arrives, Jacob goes. He leaves that place. He leaves that place and he meets his brother and they reconcile. His signature moment propels him into what's next. His signature moment takes him out of the fear and the panic and the threat and leads to a reconciliation that we couldn't have foretold before then. What might a signature moment propel you to? If you had a signature moment, 
a signature moment that changed your life, a signature moment of encounter with God that transformed you deeply, what might that propel you to? Who might that propel you to? What might be possible? You made space. We met with God, and we let him transform us. Let me talk a little bit more specifically about what happens in Jacob's signature moment. The passage talks about Jacob wrestling with a man. And it's believed that this man, or it's alluded to, the, 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 the passage makes the point that it's, 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 it's representing God. The man represents God. It's a representative of God. And they're wrestling until daybreak. Now, there's a temptation to over-spiritualize this, right? I mean, we, when, we, when we hear wrestling, we think, oh, well, you know, Jacob was just like contending in prayer, right? He was just like kneeling, and it was a difficult prayer night, and, you know, that's what it means that Jacob is wrestling in prayer. We're tempted to over-spiritualize this, but I don't think that the passage allows for that. I don't think that that's the language used. This isn't poetic language. It isn't a poetic passage. It's a narrative. The language that the passage uses is physical, not just in the word of wrestling, but even in the interactions that the man and Jacob have. It's a physical passage. Now, could it be that some of it happens in the spiritual context? I guess. Could it be that even though it uses very physical language, it's all happening sort of in the ethereal? Possibly. But, but I want to invite us to consider that Jacob's signature moment is far more earthy and physical than sometimes we've been willing to consider. God is not limited to what we would consider spiritual or traditional religious activities in order to meet us. He is not limited to what is considered traditionally religious for his signature moments. As we go through the series, and even as you read through scriptures and listen to people's signature moments, notice how many don't happen in the temple. They don't happen in the house church. They don't happen during prayer. They don't happen during fasting. Now, do some happen in those settings? Absolutely. But many do not. They happen in the day-to-day. God doesn't need us to be in a religious context or engaging in a religious activity in order to have a signature moment with us. Don't miss your signature moment by believing that God can only meet you in a religious context. Now, don't hear me say that there's no point in engaging in religious activities. There is. They strengthen our relationship with God, and signature moments happen there. But I don't want you to miss the ones that might come outside of a traditionally religious context, the way God meets us in other places. For Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor and author who passed away a few years ago, one of his signature moments came in the context of running. And in fact, it came in the context of being injured from running and sort of recuperating from an injury that he had. He met God in that, and it shaped how he thought about and talked about what it meant to engage with Scripture. But his signature moment came in the context of being injured and not being able to run and thinking about running. God met him there, and it changed how he pastored. It changed how he wrote. And for, I'm not going to exaggerate if I say thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people who, who learn from Eugene's writings, it has shaped how we meet God. It has shaped how we think of the spiritual life. It has left a different legacy. I wonder if some of us feel like square pegs trying to fit into round holes when we come to church or when we engage in religious activities. Maybe we feel like following Jesus is harder for us 
because traditionally religious things don't connect with us in the same ways that they do for others. Now, I know people like that who, even if that's true, have had signature moments in the traditionally religious. But here's what I want to say. I've had signature moments in traditionally religious contexts, and I've had signature moments while processing meat chickens. Some of you were there. God meets us in profound ways, not just in traditionally religious contexts. God can meet us whenever and wherever it's time for us to have a signature moment. So don't miss yours just because you've put God in a box. And don't miss yours just because when you're in religious context, it feels like God doesn't meet you. God will meet you. God has signature moments for you as well. Jacob's wrestling with the man and his blessing being what he is long, sorry. Jacob's wrestling with this man and a blessing being what he is longing for is very appropriate. It's very appropriate because Jacob has been angling for blessing his whole life. Jacob's whole life has been him angling for blessing, him angling for what he believes has been promised to him and what he's entitled to. There have been promises made about Jacob, even before he was born. There were promises spoken about him. There were things that were going to come to him. Maybe Jacob has heard them. He certainly heard some of them. And it seems like he's gotten the blessings. But there's been trickery along the way. He's burned bridges along the way. He's hurt people along the way. And then he's left. And the ground has been scorched. When you read Jacob's story, you see the blessing and you see the promise that said that there would be blessing. You see him getting a blessing and you experience tension. Because even though it seems like he gets what was promised to him, because of the way he got it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And you may wonder, but this is what God promised, isn't it? So it must be okay, right? I suspect not. Some of the struggle of this signature moment is that Jacob is facing one of his realities. That Jacob has consistently been grabbing after what God had already promised rather than receiving what God promised to give. Jacob consistently grabs at what he thinks is going to fulfill what God has already promised instead of receiving and trusting that God was going to give what he said he would at the time when it was necessary in the ways that he felt was right. He's taken, he's taken over and over again what he thinks God has made him entitled to. He's done it by his own strength and he's done it by his own cunning, but the fruit hasn't been good. And that matters. God has something better. God has something better. Jacob just has to be willing to wait to receive it. Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. In that moment, what he's saying to God is, I am going to wait here. I'm going to wait here with you, and I'm going to wait here for you because it's time to stop grabbing at. It's time to stop clawing for. He desperately needs what God has to offer, and he's come to the point where he's realized that grabbing after it is no longer good for him. He's done getting it on his own. Jacob's name changes in this moment. He goes from Jacob to Israel. He goes from a name that means the supplanter, the one who takes the place of, 
the one who usurps, the one who grabs at, the one who steps in for someone else. He goes from that to a name that is inextricably linked to God's promise, God's covenant, God's provision, God's blessing tethered to God. Do you see the change? Jacob's life has been changed. Israel is the patriarch of the nation that is covenanted to God, where God's blessing is tied to their connection to him. But a new name and a new blessing aren't the only thing that Jacob or Israel get. Jacob also gets a limp. It's hard to not think of this as punishment, isn't it? But what if, instead of it being a punishment, it's meant to be a constant reminder? Because the other thing that's been true of Jacob is that Jacob has consistently been trying to outrun his problems rather than letting God transform his character. And what is a limp? What does a limp do? He can't run anymore. Every time he limps from now on, he'll be reminded that it's time to stop running. That though he ran far, he got nowhere. What he needed was his character transformed. He may have acquired lots during his years, but he didn't seem to mature. He seemed to be the same immature one that tried to steal, that stole his father's blessing and tricked his way into the rights of a firstborn. God is reminding him that it's time to stop running, that it's time to be transformed. Jacob's wrestling with God is him coming to the point where he's got to decide if he's going to believe God, that he's going to believe that God is going to deliver what he said he's going to deliver, what he's promised, if he's going to agree that he's finally going to follow the path that God sets before him instead of forcing his own way. And this tension, friends, is timeless. This is a tension that's not just true for Jacob. It's a tension that each one of us needs to resolve at some point in our lives, and some of us over and over and over again. Here's the principle. If we'll trust and yield to God, he'll transform our lives and redirect our legacies. If we'll trust and yield to God, he'll transform our lives and he'll redirect our legacies. We won't claw after what we think we are entitled to or even what God we think God has promised. If we don't try to make our own way and run away from our problems instead of doing the work to build our character, if we follow God's path instead of trying to chart our own on our own, God will transform our lives and he'll redirect our legacies. It may not be to the magnitude of Israel, We may not be patriarchs and matriarchs of nations covenanted with God. In fact, I'm fairly confident we won't be. But it will be every bit the good that we need. And it will leave every bit the good that we're capable of leaving and the good that we're capable of doing. This is the start of a season in our church with these signature moments. I'd love to hear your stories as you make space, as you yield to God, as you meet him. Let's see what God does with a community that's yielded to him, that's trusting him, and that's meeting him in ways that change our lives and shape our legacies.
can't wait to see what God does in your lives and the lives of our community. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that when we make space, you meet us. Thank you that you seek out to have signature moments with us. Thank you that even if we spend years running, you can alter the course of our lives in a moment. Thank you that even when we build lives that are completely based on running away from you, we build legacies of that, you can transform those legacies in moments where we yield and trust. Thank you, Lord, that even if we've yielded and trusted and gone back on it, you still invite us again. You never give up. Thank you, Lord, that even when we've grabbed for your promises, you still have the actual things you want to give us ready for us if we'll be willing to receive them. Thank you, Lord, that even if we've burned bridges, you rebuild Thank you, Lord, that even if we scorch the earth, you are capable of making infertile ground fertile again. Lord, for my sisters and brothers here in this moment, would we have attention, attention this week, would be a capacity to attend to your voice inviting us to meet with you this week. Catch us by surprise, Lord. But even when it happens by surprise, and we recognize it, focus, and engage with you. Lord, may we hear stories this summer of how you've shaped us, transformed us, and redirected us. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, it's the first Sunday of the month, and in the first Sunday of the month, one of the things we do as a community is we celebrate communion together, the Lord.